0: visited Steve and Russa Jarter at their homestead on December 4, 2011. Steve manages his ranch using time-controlled grazing, known as a part of the Holistic Resource Management Model, and he holds a heartfelt belief that good ranching requires the balance between domestic and wild elements. Ressa, Steve's son, explained the struggle many young people from ag backgrounds face. How and why do we keep the operation going strong?
1: I'm Steve Charter. Ressa Charter.
0: How did you end up ranching?
1: So, my folks came to Montana from Wyoming in uh, 1950, and then I was born in 1951. So, um, I was just basically born into it. And uh, there were two more generations before that, they were, you know, my father and grandfather were ranchers. And then I was kind of probably, of the kids, my family, the least likely to be a rancher, I guess everybody thought. Then uh, when I met my wife, Jeannie, uh, she she was real big on the idea. So, you know, I just kind of got into it that way. Um, I think it was a good choice. I went to uh, college for a little while, and I liked it, and I liked the studies and stuff, but I just couldn't quite imagine what I would want to do. You know, so this job fits me pretty good.
2: I was born into it, or born right here. You know, I mean, I'm sort of a dilettante rancher. You know, I've been gone most of my 20s. In and out and I was around and, you know, grew up and comfortable with it and familiar with it. Just been back since last fall for longest block of time, probably in a long time. You know, I mean, I'm different than dad because our ranch that we run now is the one I grew up with. Mom and dad raised their kids and stuff. You know, I wasn't really tapped into whatever a professional track, for whatever reason. And I think demographics and social, political forces will mean, probably mean good returns to agriculture in the, over the course of whatever, the next generation or two at least. So,
0: What are some of the most challenging aspects of ranching that you've found?
1: Well, it, it is definitely challenging, and it just continues to be. Um, you know, most of my career has been really kind of pretty low prices where you just barely have enough. Uh, And that seems to be changing, which, you know, I'll I'll believe it, you know, when I see it. But so, you know, it's always been very just marginal making it work. And then, you know, you have the elements and like you know, we've went through two probably major droughts and one really major, one where it was probably 10 years of drought. And so, you know, that's that's a challenge. And then we've had two big fires in 1984. All our summer pasture burned, and we lost a lot of cattle. And then here in 2007, we had another major fire where all our grass burned, but we didn't lose any cattle. So there's always just the, you know, the challenges of nature but then there's kind of positive, well, I mean, those challenges always just force you to be creative. And we've done a lot of kind of innovative thing with our grazing and things like that that have made the ranch more drought resistant. And, you know, we've kind of managed to cope with those things pretty well.
0: What are the creative things in grazing?
1: Well, um, we do a, it's called time-controlled grazing, and, and it's also referred to as holistic resource management and uh, I guess real basically it's kind of like mimicking the way the buffalo grazed where you have a lot of cattle in a small area and graze it intensively and then let it rest and that, that's the main thing plus we've done lots of uh, in the drought we did a lot of water development where we piped water and from springs and things where it got cattle to places they weren't before and those are the main things, and then kind of alternative feed sources and things like that. So it's like when you've got to, got to come up with something, you just figure out ways to do it.
0: And Riff, what do you find most challenging? You know,
2: I mean, I think one challenge is just like thinking about it, whether to do it or not. Whether you're better served trying to carve out, you know, a more normal and potentially more lucrative way of making money, an easier way to making it kind of So, I mean, I think that's the thing I sort of, you know, I'm worried about it less and less now. At the same time, probably bears worrying about, to some extent, of just a big challenge is just market risk and just generally an unfriendly economic and political environment to family farming. As I mean, there's no explicit conspiracy, but there is a tacit agreement, seemingly, that family agriculture should be done away with and replaced by... um, corporate monocropping, basically, so, I mean, and that comes out in a lot of things, but, I mean, it's also harder to do that, I think, than those powers expected, as, you know, the people that are left now were just sort of hardened by it and just made better at dealing with it, so, you know, and sort of the nature, the challenges and just whatever, having to deal with the weather and the world and everything is, oh, it just gives you, like, a lot of legitimate things to be really afraid of, kind (laughs) of.
1: But, you know, that's also cool.
0: What do you find are the most rewarding aspects?
1: Well, you know, when you can, you know, like with the grazing and stuff, when you can actually see results, you know, it's, it's pretty amazing. You know, when you can use cattle as a tool and, uh, you know, actually be improving the range, it's really gratifying. And just having that opportunity to... Uh, you know, to work with those elements, it's pretty easy, you know, that's, um, not many people really have that opportunity, I guess, and then to actually see it work, is great.
2: You know, I mean, what I like, I like a lot of things, but I mean, one of the neatest, sort of unique things about, ranching even over modern farming is that it's still a very kind of communal work culture I guess in a way that modern mechanized agriculture doesn't have to be anymore and you know really that's what you know certainly the United States and it's growing and I mean that's where I feel like a lot of oh just what the American ethos and things came out of those sort of communal you know autonomous communities sort of that and it's it's almost the only thing, you know, the average urban person or even rural person doesn't really have any frame of reference to understand what that is, but it's it's pretty cool. You know, it is demographically kind of potentially ending, you know, who knows what exactly will happen, but, you know, I mean, dad's relatively young on the, you know, just the area ranchers, and, but it's really cool and it gives you, it's just a kind of
1: unique community. That's who I was talking to. It was a neighbor. We're going to be shipping some calves here this week. And, you know, you need a big crew to do it. And it would be really impractical to hire. You couldn't find that kind of help, that kind of skill. And then you couldn't afford it either. So it uh, really works good for everybody. And then just you have relationships and stuff you just wouldn't have otherwise. So that's that's a pretty great thing. And there
2: are interesting relationships in that Probably our politics and various things don't jive very well with most of our neighbors, but it doesn't matter, you know, as we have a lot of relationships with just just very pretty strong variations of people and but it's just for different reasons and it's kinda of cool. I mean, it's like having to go to work and deal with the people that you have to deal with at work, but you know, it's also
1: You know, it's totally volunteer deal, you know. I mean, and it is and it
2: isn't. It's volunteer, but at the same time, if we call Scott, he's going to come unless,
1: yeah.
0: and it's,
2: you
1: know, so are we. Mm-hmm.
0: What are some of the changes that you've seen over your lifetime?
1: That's a good question. Um, you know, it's been happening pretty much during all my lifetime, but everything above us is really concentrating. You know, like our cattle will leave here and they'll probably go into you know we do direct market some but they'll be going into feedlots and these feedlots are uh, you know there's fewer and fewer of those and um so that's really concentrating and then you know like the people that slaughter them, the packers you know they're concentrating more and more and then at the retail end where the meat's sold you know it's like walmart and a few i mean so you know there's a lot of ranchers, and then it just immediately concentrates into very few. And so it makes for a really kind of lopsided marketing situation. That's a pretty big change. But then another change, I mean, that's happening, and my wife Jeannie was really working with was, uh, you know, the local food stuff. And it's still, you know, and we sell some meat directly, and it's a very small percentage of what we do. But you know, there is just a lot of interest in it and the uh, people that buy it, you know, really like the product and they really like dealing with ranchers and stuff. So um, that's a change that's just kind of starting, but I think I think the possibilities are pretty big there. And that's probably the best counter to all this concentration and, and centralization of the food industry.
2: You know, like Dad says, is, you know, most of his career were bad years more in a lot of ways, you know, and uh, since I've been more grown up and thought about it more as it's been better and getting better, which is just kind of interesting, you know, who knows how long that'll last, but, you know, and on the local foods thing, my mom was thinking about that but before it was kind of in the vernacular and, What's the most interesting, I think the next level of that for the western states is some some version of sort of exported local food, because no matter how vibrant the local food economy there is in Montana, you know, there's dozens of cows for every person, but I think that just general idea might be able to be repackaged in such a way that, you know, say a lot of meat is finished on grass on the western plains, and then it's cut here, and you know, just shipping in containers to whatever kind of retail outlets or co-op type situations and things. And, you know, I think that's the next kind of skating to where the puck's can be sort of thing in the way that just sort of normal local food was about 20 years ago. That would be what would really be able to sort of rejuvenate just the rural economy.
0: And I guess along that line, what are some of the changes you think agriculture will have to make in the future?
1: Well. You know, I think what we're doing is so fossil fuel based. And uh, we're not necessarily, you know, all that fossil fuel dependent because, you know, it's, we grow grass and the cows eat grass. But the minute they leave here, you know, all their feed that's produced for them is basically just fossil fuel converted into something else. And um, it's probably just not sustainable. So I just think, you know, we're, we're just going to have to you know, reverse that trend and get back to more of a solar based, you know, where the sun's producing the food and not the fossil fuels, because it's just not going to be there and it's not going to be affordable. So, and that's a big, big change. And uh, I think we're going to be forced, (laughs) forced into it. But I think it's good to be thinking about that because you know the more you're kind of trying to prepare for it the less it'll be a shock you know and the more you can kind of transition into it i mean i think it's related to that i mean one
2: thing that's going to have to change is there's going to have to be more people coming into it or not as the case may be but you know i mean i <clears throat> i think that there is that the resources depletion thing will transform agriculture but that the corporate state partnership will continue to run that system for a very long time. I mean, they'll grow simultaneously, you know, and they'll be sort of parallel worlds. And I mean the thing is is you know, as if you can garrison the Midwest and just continue to grow grain from fossil fuels is that'll work. That makes sense to do. Um so that and probably will more or less. But that doesn't constrain me, you know, as I can still do whatever I want. And I think there is sort of a neo back to the land movement in, you know, somewhat and probably more fleshed out and mature than it was in the 60s and 70s. And, I mean, just sort of a lot of the, oh, just sort of ideas and techniques that made that somewhat plausible in the 60s and 70s now, I think, are coming a little more to fruition. um, You know, I mean, my, oh, you know, kind of pipe dream vision for even this real arid landscape here is... Just with thoughtful design essentially, it's just a new homesteading movement that can make it work. And, you know, it's, it doesn't look very possible right now, but it's certainly... You know, also, another change that's going to have to happen is, you know, you're going to have to become more comfortable with, oh, just sort of sliding more towards peasantry. But there's a lot of freedom in that potentially. And I think, you know, it's like, say, our summer places higher and more rainfall and springs and things and if that was in central Africa there'd be several hundred person villages sprung up there so you know part of it you know it's just kind of an innovation in the mind to be able to be more flexible
0: And what things would you change about agriculture if you could right now?
1: Yeah I think it would be the same things as just to make it more back to a land based solar based and, and moving away from fossil fuel and You know, less shipping stuff around, uh, getting stuff kind of closer to home. And, you know, that's a little bit limited what you can do in Montana because so much of what the grasslands, you know, that we can kind of produce more beef than we've got people here. So, you know, it's going to have to be shipped around some, but just to try to reverse those trends of where everything is produced one way and consumed another and, you know, similar to what we were talking about before, but...
2: Something that would facilitate all we were talking about before is changing the social status of agriculture, essentially. I mean, if I could snap my fingers and change that, it'd be young people wouldn't be wanting an MBA, both for financial and social reasons. They would be wanting to learn about holistic resource management or whatever, and that would be cool and, you know, attractive and whatever.
1: Well, it's kind of happening, too, you know. And what's funny is it's kind of happening with non-rural people. I mean, yeah. it's kind of, you know, from outside wanting to get back to it, which is which is great, you
0: know. Is there anything that you think people need to know about agriculture that most people don't?
1: Well, you know, people are so removed now. You know, people in the urban areas, they just, you know, don't have really any kind of land and animal experience and stuff. And so because they don't have that basic understanding, you know, I mean, just haven't lived with it, I think they, a lot of times their intentions are good or their thoughts are good, but their kind of views of it are kind of unrealistic. And, you know, a lot of it comes from a good place because, I mean, they see industrial agriculture, but um, they have, I think, a kind of a romanticized view of of animals and nature and grass and stuff, and so um, that's why, I mean, any time we have an opportunity to kind of get people out and see stuff, because, you know, we're pretty pro-cattle, that uh, we think they're a great thing, and we think good beef, good meat's a great thing, too, and that it's all, if it's done right, it's very ecologically and economically justifiable, and uh, so if people can urban people can kind of get out and, and kind of see that, that, uh, you know, that that's important that, that, you know, they, um, cause you know, like say a lot of the anti-cattle and stuff, you can see where it's coming from. And so, a lot of cases it is justified. I mean, you know, cattle can be very destructive and, and the systems of raising animals can be pretty bad, but it doesn't have to be that way. And, uh, so, say the more people can kind of get out in the country and see it and stuff, I think better it will be.
2: Yes, it's along those lines. It's oh, just how in lockstep urban society is with just say even ranchers is you know if there was a kind of Ayn randian revolt of ranchers, the cities would burn just because the hamburgers, the dollar hamburger, would go away. And, I mean, it goes along thing of being anti-cattle or anti-industrial food, is, I mean, we wrestled with a lot of that, is I mean, because on some level, I'd say, that's, you know, the feedlots should be shut down by government fiat. It's bad, bad, bad. But the reality is, it's good, good, good. You know, next week, we can sell all our calves at once into really robust liquid markets, and we know that. And we knew that last year, packers and the retail people are all relatively certain about a lot of things, a lot of complicated supply logistics, you know, and it kind of does come all the way upstream back to this, the primary producer grain or beef or whatever, is somehow those two ends of it, the consumer end and that end of it, need to come to some kind of meeting in the minds to figure out what we're going to do, because you can't just stop it, or it's just, that's a bad idea, but... If we keep going like we are, it'll stop at its own accord. It'll just run out. So there needs to be there needs to be a transformation, and it's sort of, you know, it's the primary producer, agricultural producers, and the consumers who need to kind of think that that communication is starting to happen. You know, in Northern Plains, is somewhat of a good example of doing that. But it's, you know, and I think, oh, just kind of like say in the farm to school world is in some ways even more promising than local food and just volume sense is that it's important that next generation of eaters and then, you know, they immediately influence their parents or just the whole thing will. So, I mean, I think, and even say more than a school garden, but say, you know, commercial farming and ranching operations and somehow having some relationship with the school or something, you know, I think might be a place to kind of start that.
0: What might be your best memory on the ranch?
1: Mm. yeah that's hard because I've got lots of good ones um, I think well we trailed the cattle back and forth between the two places and in the past we kind of when the kids were little we've got a, like an old fashioned chuck wagon and then our neighbors had a team and, and uh, so we'd take the cattle up and do the wagon and then camp overnight so when the kids were you know like grade school age you know it was pretty cool and then, you know, then the neighbors, they liked it, too. And then uh, camp out and, you know, cook with Dutch ovens and stuff. And, and so that's an awful good memory. Let's say it competes with lots of other ones, I guess.
2: More generally, when I was younger, my dad and his brother and sister ran their, a bigger ranch, communally or together, you know, before, and then later on split it up. But in the summers, we'd live up in the summer place, and... My cousins were around, and I just, I mean, it's not so much specific memory but just remembering those summers that that was, you know, Dad's generation was wilder, you know, and they went to Run Room Schoolhouse for half their schooling for a while. But is the, even so, is that those summers were bow uh, for being, whatever, middle-class Westerners, just sort of a wild way to grow up. You know, it was good. Good for all of us. I mean, the problem with it is that that makes you kind of, I mean it's not a problem, but I mean at least for me it's uh, just makes you less compatible with uh whatever, just your industrial niche, you know?
0: Can you think of anything you'd like to add?
1: Well, this is um this is a little odd, but uh I have a friend that has these kind of people that come up from Mexico who are kind of almost like shaman kinda of, you know, they put on these workshops and and uh the lady that's comes with them doesn't speak English but she's kind of real psychic and so they do these kind of retreats where you kind of do some kind of spiritual kind of things and one thing they did was this this kind of a each individual would get out and everybody would kind of concentrate on that individual and then do kind of a drumming thing and then then afterwards she'd kind of concentrate on you and and so for me she kind of had these visions or whatever and her vision was um, she could see me and uh, like my head wasn't there and one side was a big horse and then the other side was like an elk and then a big beam of light coming up there and uh, you know I thought well that's cool but I didn't know what it meant you know and then uh, like a couple days later I've just been thinking about it and kind of what I thought it meant is that the horse was kind of representing the kind of domestic and the elk was kind of the wild and what kind of ranching is is kind of getting that balance, you know. Pretty cool. That there's a, you know, that there's a lot of power there if you can work those two because, you know, we've gone so far over to the domestic, you know, and that we forgot the wild part. But you know, that's, that's the future is if we can bring that power in you know, and kind of work with it.
2: I mean, I guess 21st century is going to require that turning away from technology is sort of stupid. You know? I mean, seeing the fruits of technological civilization, you can think we should just do away with it, but it's, you can't, basically. And, You know, as everything gives and takes, but I guess things like the grazing management and big picture sort of soft path technology things that will probably continue to become more sophisticated. Massive computing power and things just has implications for everything. And, you know, just being able to model that kind of thing on a large scale and just kind of in the context of climate change management or whatever, I think that there'll be some things that we can't really think about effectively that as technology now, but probably over the course of my lifetime or whatever, there'll be some pretty wild things happen that don't seem technological necessarily, but are in a more sophisticated way, more biomimicry or something in a way. And, you know, and I think ranchers and farmers, the less Fossil fuel and machinery dependent, you are are sort of some of the few people in just first world society who sort of have an intuitive grasp of that kind of thing. That'll be able to parse a lot of that information. And think about it. You know, it's just whatever school tells you. If you're smart and intellectual, that you should work for the capitalist and be well rewarded for it. But you know, I parse a lot of information on the internet or whatever all the time, and I do think it's a good position to just have kind of capable smart people sit and just for what may kind
1: of be like I say it's you know you're never real confident what you're doing is right um, you know you just kind of do the best you can and you know pay attention and just kind of knowing what the right path is never easy and it's you kind of stumble along and, and uh, you know if you can keep kind of going that's the main thing
0: This project was made possible by a grant from the Matthew Hansen Endowment Fund and by an award through the Environmental Studies Program at the University of Montana. Special thanks to Steve Paulson of the Northern Plains Resource Council. The music used in this program is Cherries by David Chapel, also known as Lustana, and Instrumental by the Library Ains, both licensed under Creative Commons. See links and hear more of my collection of interviews at montanaheritageproject.com.